This podcast is brought to you by the Perennial Leader Project. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where we explore how to integrate timeless principles and practices into everyday life. On today's episode, my guest is Estelle Frankel, the author of The Wisdom of Not Knowing, Discovering a Life of Wonder by Embracing Uncertainty. Estelle is a practicing psychotherapist, spiritual director, and speaker. I really enjoyed the book and the conversation and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Estelle Frankel. Before we bring on our guest, if you're not already a subscriber to The Path, it's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life sent right to your inbox. Please take a moment to visit perennialleader.com slash start here to subscribe. It's completely free. You'll be joining a growing community in search of wisdom, and I would really appreciate it. Now, on to the show. Hi, Estelle. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Great to be here with you, Joshua. Well, I am a big fan of your book, The Wisdom of Not Knowing. You were on a short list of authors I reached out to many months ago prior to launching the podcast, so I am grateful to connect with you. My pleasure. To begin the conversation, I was wondering if you can recall what initially planted the idea of this book around not knowing. Well, it's kind of a mystery that this book knocked on the door of my mind. I think it came from many directions. There was a personal element, which I'll talk about in a moment, but I, as a psychotherapist and a teacher of Jewish mysticism, the ocean I swim in is the ocean of unknowing, therapy, growth is all about stepping into the known. It's about letting go of the familiar. And in Jewish mysticism, it's really all about circling the great mystery, the unfathomable, unknowable mystery of existence, of divinity. So the personal element, though, was I noticed that as I got older, some of my adventurous spirit, I was very adventurous and courageous in my youth, I could throw myself into the unknown and go for the ride. But I just noticed that I was becoming more fearful and anxious around the unknown, and I, I had some personal homework to do around this subject. So that's sort of the backdrop of this book. Well, I love it. Thank you so much. For someone listening, maybe not too excited about the topic of not knowing, how would you describe maybe some of the benefits of ultimately embracing and exploring not knowing? Well, let me say that we all have in us a part of us that fears the unknown. We like certainty. It's wired into our brains for survival reasons to seek the familiar and the secure. But we also have another part of our 
brains that seeks novelty and adventure and that wants to venture out of the cave into <laughs> the savanna, you know, but our caveman ancestors created in us this polarity of seeking the unknown and fearing the unknown. In one of the early chapters of Entering the Unknown, what part of our inner wisdom and intuition, what role does that play in basically kind of some of those first steps? Well, intuition, you might say, is a way of knowing that's beyond thought. We have our exquisite brains that think with words and words are not the thing in itself. It, the word designates, it's a pointer. And you know, there's a famous saying in a painting of a wise man pointing with a finger at the moon. But Confucius says that the imbecile sees this and gazes at the finger rather than at the moon. So what we know, we know with our minds, with our thinking apparatus, which functions with words, which are partial and limited and finite. But life is infinite. Life is vast and mysterious. And so we have to shuttle between our knowing and our not knowing and work with the ways our brain, the ways our brains are wired to seek certainty, to avoid uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty. People this past year during the pandemic have been suffering tremendous anxiety. We therapists have been overworked for the past year and four months. Because human beings do not like uncertainty. We really don't. It seems in modern times, we have the ability to create generally a little more certainty than maybe in the past. In your work, is that what you see of, of us basically desiring certainty, kind of leading to some, some potential problems? I do think we have an enormous amount of control over our lives, and it, it does create this illusion of being in control and being able to make a plan and execute it, whereas in many parts of the world, people still live more in the mystery and have a lot less control, and so they're more used to rolling with what life dishes out. We feel very thwarted when we can't do what we want to do. So I do think that modernity, in a way, backfires on us and creates an illusion of, of certainty that really, you know, when, when you get right down to it, life is very uncertain. And, and you never know, might be good stuff coming down the pike, might be scary stuff coming down down the pike. But if you think you know, you're deluding yourself. Well, I'm, we're just scratching the surface. I, I'm so excited to explore this more deeply. Uh, I've, I've read a lot of books that maybe touch on uncertainty, or maybe there's a chapter 
this is the first book that I've read that really an exhaustive kind of look at it. And one of the things you reference is the hero's journey. We've kind of talked a, a bit about intuition. Do you see this path towards uncertainty, a bit of a universal call, if you will, if we're able to, you know, find some stillness? I think that's a really good question. You know, sometimes your life is cranking along blissfully (laughs) according to your plans. You went to college, you graduated, you got a job, you got married, you had kids. Like, your life is following this program, and then suddenly something happens that thwarts your will that isn't expected. And it's at those moments when we're facing the unknown and unexpected that we really start to grow in deeper ways. And yeah, I do think part of the hero's journey mythologically in many cultures, it's that moment when the hero enters the unknown, the wilderness, so to speak. In biblical folklore, Abraham leaves the known world, crosses over the river on his way to Canaan, and he doesn't know where he's going, but the call he hears, the divine call is, go to yourself, to a land that I will show you. You know, leave your homeland, leave your family, leave your culture, and go to the land that will be shown to you. So he doesn't even know where he's going. And there's no map and no itinerary. There's just this sense of needing to follow an intuition. And then, of course, the whole biblical legend of the 40 years in the desert, of the Israelites wandering in the desert and not knowing when they would arrive. And we have times in our lives where we are wandering in the wilderness of our confusion, of our not knowing, until truth becomes clear, until the next step becomes clear. So we have to get comfortable with uncertainty. We have to learn to bear what the poet John Keats calls negative capability, which is this ability to be in uncertainty without irritable grasping for certainty, this impatience we have. Like we'll prematurely conclude a question sometimes, we'll foreclose on possibilities because we can't bear to just wait for the real knowing to emerge. You mentioned polarity earlier, and and what comes up for me is this polarity of fear and courage. Maybe when that moment comes upon us, how do you see the the navigating both fear and and courage in some of those moments? Well, you can't develop courage without fear because it's in the moments of fear when we decide to act despite our fear that we develop courage. So courage is a muscle we build by facing fears rather than avoiding situations that scare us. Now, if the unknown is what scares us, 
and we don't have courage, we're going to just stay in the familiar. And even if we're unhappy where we are, it's familiar, it's safe, it might be a unhappy marriage, it might be a job that sucks, but it's familiar, and we don't have to face our fears. But if we are willing to take the plunge into the unknown and face fear head on, then new things can happen, then our destiny can greet us. That's so helpful. You mentioned around curiosity and and questions, something I think I wish I would have got a little earlier in life is just the the power of, of questions. You write, skillful questioning is the key to all growth and learning. What might be an example of, of some skillful questioning that we could integrate in our lives? Well, asking a good question is the hallmark of intelligence. It's not knowing the answers. It's staying with the question, and even when you get an answer not resting on your laurels, but asking the next question. So like in science, in research, in inquiry, whether it's scientific, psychological, or spiritual inquiry, each question takes you to another level where another level of questioning emerges. And I would say that every person who comes to me for therapy, there's some question that's compelling them to grow. And sometimes the question is a good question, and sometimes it's a bad question. Let me give you an example of a bad question. That would be great. I have a client whose son has a cancer, and... My client's very anxious about her son's cancer. And she, her question initially is, why is this happening to me? Very kind of a little bit absorbed with herself, her experience of the stress. But the very question of why is this happening or why is this happening to me or to my son isn't a helpful question. It doesn't lead to growth. It leads to self-recrimination, blame, and a kind of irrational attachment to the notion that life should be fair. And if painful things are happening, it's not fair. And so the why is a kind of reckoning with trying to make sense of something that just is, that's difficult, that's a mystery, that we really will never know the answer And so then I I say, well, what's another question that would be more helpful is, where is this experience of cancer taking us as a family? How can we grow through the struggles and facing the fears and trying to find compassion? And so it's a different kind of question. It's what I call a teleological question rather than causal. Causal is why is looking backwards in the rear view mirror of life. Why is this happening to me? 
teleology is, you know, the future is calling us. Our destiny is calling us. So things are happening because we're being led in a particular direction to evolve. So there's no blame, there's no causality, but there is power in embracing one's destiny wholeheartedly and finding light and finding growth no matter what's happening. When you mention living with a question, what might that look like in in everyday life? I've heard that come up and that's come up in uh, a couple of previous episodes. How would you recommend somebody live with a question? Well, I think that there's the sense that life is mysterious and answers reduce anxiety and shrink the mystery of it all. But living the questions in the sense that Rilke, the poet, talks about living into the answers over the course of a lifetime, that you love the question. In Zen, there's a Zen koan that is just what or what is this? And even something familiar and known, when you approach it with that inquiry, that curiosity, what is this? Or who am I? (laughs) Without answering it, that in the echo of that question, just the mystery of things as they are emerges. I love this idea. There's, and, and I'll just say one more thing. There's yeah, a beautiful please. teaching about the Hebrew word chokhmah. Chokhmah is like Sophia, wisdom. And chokhmah in Kabbalah is the first point to emerge in the great chain of being when nothing began to create through the Big Bang, everything that is. So the very first point from which everything emerges is chokhmah, wisdom, Sophia. And that Hebrew word is a composite of two Hebrew words, which are koach ma, the power of what. That wisdom emerges from that question of what, ma, what is it? Wow. It seems like a big obstacle can be something that you write about. I I love these two analogies of around letting go of the past, this old GPS map and using our our rear view mirror potentially to drive. What might be a way to recognize if we're jumping to maybe some outdated maps to answer a question? We do it all the time. We use something familiar to fill in the blanks of the whole story, like sometimes we're wrong, but we'll hear one word, and from that one word, we'll, I've heard that word before, it must mean yada yada. So we, I think in brain science, it's called pattern recognition. And this is what set humans apart from a lot of other animals, our ability to remember and do, of course, animals remember and have familiar cues, but it's more instinctive. But 
so often when we do this filling in the blanks, this pattern recognition, we're relying on the past and it overlays onto the present moment and then we don't accurately see what's right in front of us now at this moment. People do this interpersonally with their partners a lot. Their partner will start to say something, and because we know our partner so well, we jump to the conclusion, of course, they are criticizing us, or there's something they're doing that's annoying that they've done a thousand times before. And maybe they're going to do that annoying thing, but maybe not. And it's that rear looking at experiencing life through the rear view mirror rather than staying present in the moment. When you stay present in the moment, you don't participate in the replay of old dynamics. Because if I think somebody, if I already prejudge and think you mean such and such, I may act in a way that determines that you will do that. I'll add to the replay. And yeah, I told you, I wrote about my my old GPS. I still drive a 2008 Camry with this old built-in GPS that was state-of-the-art technology in 2008. But if I use that instead of Google Maps, it will take me down a lot of blind alleys and (laughs) I'll get lost because it just doesn't know the current reality. Yeah. If we are fortunate enough to identify it and recognize that that we're using some outdated maps, any thoughts on helping us loosen the grip, I guess, if you will, and and move forward? Well, it's the assumption of knowledge that's dangerous. So if we bring our curiosity day by day to each moment then we're more likely to experience the moment as it is. So it's really about developing, getting out of default mode. Our default mode is pattern recognition, impatience, jumping to conclusions fast. But if we slow down, take a breath, and ask ourselves, what is this? (laughs) You know, what's going on, as Marvin Gaye said? What's really going on is a -a one-of-a-kind moment that has never been before, and uh, we should be curious about that. For me, I know I'm quick. I can be impatient. I can finish people's sentences in my mind, and and it's terrible. It's just let people say what they're going to say, you know, and sometimes they really surprise me. The rearview mirror, as you've mentioned, seems to be desirable and in what we want. We want to to make make meaning and see the pattern. But looking forward, the front mirror, kind of bringing in wonder. What are your thoughts on wonder? How would you maybe explain that to someone? The the alternate view to the old map. Well, just the word itself, wonder, has a double meaning. Like we, when you're wondering about things, you're questioning, you're curious. And the state of wonder is one of the most pleasurable experiences we can have. 
children live in wonder because they're seeing the world for the first time and their eyes are not jaded. I travel a lot to islands and I've spent a good deal of time in the Hawaiians and other beautiful places. And we'll go out every day to watch the sunset as everybody on the block goes out. And, and the joke is, oh, it's just another lousy day in paradise. But every sunset is extraordinary and different. And it's like a revelation of beauty. So just like my computer screen and my cell phone go to sleep, I assume yours does too, right? Absolutely. goes into sleep mode. Our brains need to get, we have to tap on ourselves to wake us up out of that default mode of sleeping, sleeping through the sunset, sleeping through the sunrise, sleeping as we sleepwalk through our lives and fail to wonder, to be in wonder. Doing something with small children can open up that sense of wonder. And um, having children, I have a grandchild. I got to have that experience of experiencing life for the first time yet again through the eyes of a child. I think this is why people get high also. People use substances because they want to get out of default mode. It definitely resonates with me around the small child. I have a a son that's soon to be three and definitely tremendous wonder right now with the cicadas and, and different things that are going on in nature. He'll just, uh, yeah, it's really inspiring. <laughs> oh, aren't you lucky? And, yeah. <laughs> and where where are you? Where do you live? I am uh, near D.C. I live in okay. Maryland. All yeah. right. So the cicadas, I don't think we have them here. No. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. One of the things that you write about in the the chapter Darkness Encounters with the Divine, I, I had quite a few notes there and you talk about awakening consciousness and around these three stages. You know, stage 1, we don't know, but we don't know that we don't know. And in stage two, we begin to mature and basically come to that realization. And then that third stage, I was wondering to know if you could speak a bit more about that, if you remember. Okay. I, I sure, wasn't... sure. Yeah, so let me just go back for the listeners and expand this. Like, when we're young, we don't know diddly squat. But we don't know that we don't know diddly squat because we don't know how much there is to know. And children will often brag about how much they know about something because they don't know how much there is to know. So that's a kind of state of ignorance. And awakening begins at the moment that you realize you don't really know. So not knowing is the beginning of wisdom. But there's yet a third stage, which is the enlightened state. It's that you don't know, but you don't know that you don't know. It's the unself-consciousness of presence, of experiencing life 
beyond thought. Like when you're in an experience rather than thinking about and telling yourself a story about the experience, you go beyond words. Again, that thing about words cut reality into bite-sized pieces. In fact, the Hebrew word for word, milah, also means to cut, to break things into bits. But when you are fully present in that state of wonder that we were talking about, it's beyond thought. You don't know. You're in the not knowing. You're in the mystery. But you're not even self-conscious that you're in the non-dual state. Like, have you ever been meditating and all of a sudden you think, oh, I'm really meditating. Oh, I'm really in a great state. Well, the minute you start to think about what you're experiencing, it's gone. It's in that losing oneself where thoughts stop, words stop. That's that's the enlightened state. And some of us have that experience of grace. It's, it's grace when it happens. And maybe you have a meditation practice, and maybe once in a while you drop into that state of grace for a moment at the end of a meditation, or once in a while you drop into that state. Oh, I appreciate that. That's really fascinating. Another aspect that I, I found fascinating in this chapter was working with the, the shadow. How would you describe the shadow to maybe someone who's not familiar with that term from, from Carl Jung? The shadow, it has been called the, the dark side, the unconscious side, the, the part of us that we don't own about ourselves and instead tend to project onto others. Like if somebody's annoying you, somebody you can't stand, they probably remind you of something you have disowned about yourself. And so the shadow is the repository of all our disowned parts. And the more loving and accepting we are of ourselves, the more we can extend that generosity to others then we have fewer people that annoy us. Of course, there'll always be a few. <laughs> and what are the, any thoughts around integrating the shadow? That, yeah. Well, it comes often as a rude awakening when you realize that you are that, that that annoying part you see in others, you realize, well, I'm a little like that. And then when you make room for that and you accept that as a part of yourself, that's the beginning of integrating the shadow. How does that connect with some of the thoughts around, I've read quite a bit on anger, emotions, and some of the uh, philosophy around that of, of a starting point being kind of examining your own wretchedness as a, as a path to, to forgiveness. Right. right. Absolutely. I remember a time I was in my early 20s. I was somebody who never got angry. And one day I was taking a walk 
and uh, this dog, a pit bull, came up and bit me in the butt. And I got really angry, and I started screaming at the dog. And, and I went home, and luckily I didn't, you know, it was a bite. It was a real bite, but I didn't get rabies or anything. But it made me look at, I guess there is an anger in me. And I began to work with anger, and I started thinking about other places where I felt angry. So it was a kind of a encounter with my my shadow. So I thanked that dog for biting me, for helping me grow. So yeah, anger is often a shadow aspect of ourselves. It connects with a bit of, of what you write about in this, this concept of not labeling anything good or bad. Could you speak to yeah. that? Well, I think what you're referring to, it's the different octaves of not knowing. And, of course, there's this basic octave of admitting ignorance. And in admitting ignorance, you begin to learn, you open up, you question. But at the highest octave, not knowing is about living in the non-dual field where you don't dichotomize life and split things into this is good, this is bad, clinging to the good, pushing away the bad. So not knowing at the higher octave is about living with life in the wholeness of existence that is pleasurable and painful, light and dark, yes and no, birth and death. It's holding all the polarities in a unified field of awareness without the chatter in the mind that is always saying yes and no, desire, averse, like that. You have the poet Rumi wrote a famous, uh, the Sufi poet Rumi writes, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So I think Rumi is talking about this non-dual field, the place of ultimate not knowing, beyond words, beyond ideas, beyond even the duality of me and you. Beautiful poem. Thank you for sharing that. The parables that have been around for thousands of years seem to be powerful as well. You reference a, a popular one of the, the farmer that loses the horse and essentially maybe yes, maybe no is the response to, to these situations that come up. How do you help people transition to this maybe yes, maybe no, if anything comes to mind? Right. That Yeah, in that parable, the peasant's horse disappears and the neighbors come and say, we're so sorry, terrible luck. And the peasant says, might be good luck, might be bad luck. And as the story unfolds, eventually the horse comes back with more horses. 
The neighbors say, oh, such good luck, so many horses. He says, man, might be good luck, might be bad luck. The next day, his son rides one of the steeds and is thrown off the horse and breaks his leg. And lo and behold, the next day, the army comes to conscript every able-bodied man, and the farmer's son is exempt from going to war. So I think when we zoom out rather than zoom in, zooming out is to see the vastness of time and space and life and all these things that we get caught in in our attachment to how we want things to be, what we want as the good outcome. When you zoom out, you see more of the story. So I think we have to live with more of a cosmic vision of life. For me, silent meditation is a place I go to zoom out when I'm, especially when I'm getting cranky zoomed in to my life. It's just a more open field of awareness. And within that open field of awareness, things are as they are. They're neither good nor bad. They are. And this too will change. Whatever's going on, just know it's going to change. I love that zoom out. In the everyday moments of life, any thoughts on loosening the grip on on maybe how it ought to be, those thoughts that we have? Well, things are as they are, not as they ought to be. And (laughs) we're here to try and fix the world and make it closer to how it ought to be. But the world is broken, and it is as it is. So arguing with what is is the definition of suffering, right? Why do we suffer? Because life doesn't meet our expectations. So the more you have a story with expectations of how it ought to be, the less happy you might end up. But I'm not saying give up on all aspirations. It's good, you know, you're trying to go in a direction, you have goals, but life throws obstacles. And I think just like, you know, online stores send us our daily deliveries, especially during this pandemic, life sends us special delivery, all kinds of unexpected objects and obstacles. Like, hey, I didn't order this. Like my client, she didn't order cancer for her son. That's not what she wanted. But it is what is. And you can't argue with what is. You have to find a way to be with what life delivers. For someone listening, inspired and interested in in stepping into the unknown, what might be a small step or a starting point you would recommend to discover, wonder, and embrace uncertainty? Well, those are slightly different questions. There's the practice of wonder. I could share a Mary Oliver story. The poet Mary Oliver used to take the exact same walk around a pond 
the same pond every single day. And each day she'd find something wondrous to write about, to start a poem. And so she would hide pencils in the trees, sharpen pencils all around the pond. So it's about circling our lives of the familiar with eyes of wonder, whether it's being curious, asking questions, getting out of default mode, but trying to see things with fresh eyes each day. That's the wonder side. On the adventure side, trying new things, pushing ourselves to go to new places, to get out of our habits, to get out of default mode. And if we need to make a very big life transition, but we're terrified, break it down into steps. Take the first step, then take the next step. And each step you take will build that courage muscle. And pretty soon you'll be in the middle of a huge transition. And life is just really a series of transitions and changes. So we might as well stop fighting the unknown and embrace it because there really is nothing else. I love it. That's a beautiful way to to wrap up the conversation. I encourage everyone to pick up the book, The Wisdom of Not Knowing. You will not be disappointed. This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in learning more about your work, Estelle? Well, I have two books. So my first book is very much about the way I weave psychotherapy and mysticism. That's sacred therapy. People can write to me. I teach occasionally, and I practice uh, counseling in many different forms. Okay. Okay, great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes so you can easily find that. Estelle Frankel, I thank you for your time and wisdom. This has really been a pleasure. Likewise. Best thank of luck. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.